Good evening. The New York House delegation calls for Trump's removal on the steps of City Hall. Trump's nuclear threat is still very much in play. The alt-right's role in the assault on the Capitol and public ownership for social media giants. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Sunday, January 10th, 2021. Thousands of Israelis on Saturday renewed weekly demonstrations against Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, calling for him to resign over corruption charges and his alleged mishandling of the coronavirus crisis. Protesters held signs reading, Go and BB Let My People Go, referring to Netanyahu by his nickname. The protest comes as Israel is in the midst of its third national coronavirus lockdown and as the country presses forward with a vaccination drive. Netanyahu's corruption trial was set to resume this week, but was postponed indefinitely amid tighter restrictions. And former California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger released a moving video on Sunday recounting his childhood in Austria while denouncing the riot last week in Washington that left five people dead. In the nearly eight-minute clip, the actor-turned-politician directly invoked Kristallnacht, the 1938 Nazi attack against Jewish homes, businesses, and synagogues that was a prelude to the Holocaust and addressed his own father's Nazi past. President Trump sought a coup by misleading people with lies. My father and our neighbors were misled also with lies, the Austrian-born Schwarzenegger said, adding that Kristallnacht was conducted by the Nazi equivalent of the Proud Boys one of the right-wing groups that assembled in support of Trump's false claims about the election. And House lawmakers may have been exposed to COVID-19 while sheltering at an undisclosed location during the Capitol siege by a violent mob loyal to President Donald Trump. The Capitol's attending physician notified all lawmakers Sunday of the virus exposure and urged them to be tested. Dozens of lawmakers were whisked to the secure location after the would-be pro-Trump insurrectionists stormed the Capitol, breaking through barricades to roam the halls and offices and ransacking the building. Trump is now facing impeachment after inciting supporters at a rally near the White House before they marched to the Capitol. The House could vote on impeachment in a matter of days, less than two weeks before Democratic President-elect Joe Biden is inaugurated on January 20th. In New York City on Saturday, members of the House delegation from New York met on the steps of City Hall at Mayor Bill de Blasio. Caucus leader Hakeem Jeffries joined the impeachment chorus. Donald Trump must be removed from office immediately. He should be impeached, convicted, and thrown out of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and forever banished to the dustbin of history. Every second, every minute, every day that Donald Trump remains in office presents a clear and present danger to the health, safety, and well-being of the American people and our democracy. That is why the House is pursuing every available means at our disposal to accomplish the objective of holding the President of the United States accountable. Representative Hakeem Jeffries. Meanwhile, Republican Senator Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania on Sunday joined Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska in calling for Trump to resign and go away as soon as possible. And Representative Carolyn Maloney, chair of the House Oversight Committee, says Trump has to go as well because he's a danger to democracy. He is a clear threat to our democracy. 
If he does not resign, then the leaders of our country have to meet and move forward with the 25th Amendment to remove him from office. If they do not act, then this Congress will go back next week and we will move forward with the second impeachment of Donald J. Trump. Maloney is also calling for an investigation into how the invaders were allowed into the Capitol, a high security building. Videos show officers again and again allowing the mob access, some posing for selfies with the invaders, others overheard expressing support for their cause. In the weeks leading up to the assault, there were clear indications posted on the Internet that something was going to happen on January 6th. To protect our capital, these threats were all over the Internet. Everyone knew about it. What was their role in protecting us? What was their role that day? to defend the capital and to defend the people and what are they doing now to hold people accountable and to make sure this never happens again those who allowed this attempted coup should all resign we must protect our democracy representative carolyn maloney and mayor bill de blasio made the point that donald trump despite the marauders' failure to stop the electoral vote count, still retains the power to launch a nuclear attack on his own. Look behind you at City Hall. Can you imagine? A lot of you have spent time here. Can you imagine a mob taking over this building? It's never happened. It will never happen in New York City. But it happened in Washington, D.C. Why? And I support Congressman Bowman's efforts for have a full investigation because someone gave the order to let that happen and we need to know who and they must be punished. But when I think of my friends, these good people I've served with for years, that they were in danger and democracy was in danger. It's very clear what the result must be. Donald Trump must go now. Now. Anyone who is that treasonous Anyone who has lost control of his mental abilities to that level as to start an insurrection against the United States should not have his finger on the nuclear button. And as Mayor de Blasio, the nuclear football are the codes used to launch a nuclear attack. They follow whoever is the president who can access the codes and begin an attack without any approval or consultation. Since the time of President Harry Truman, the idea then was to keep the bomb out of the hands of an aggressive military. Today, it's a military that stands between someone like Trump and the ultimate power of a president. The policy director of the Plowshares Fund is Tom Colina. It's just outrageous that the only hope we have at this point is that Trump won't make an order, or if he does, that the military will not obey it. That's not a plan, right? If we're really concerned about presidential authority, like we are in this case, we should have a firm policy that lays out what we want. Congress and the president need to lay down what their expectations are so that the military knows what to do if they get an order from a president like this. We can't leave it up to the military's judgment. So we should change the policy. And I think everyone understands now, finally, that giving this kind of authority to a president who could, in this, in this case, be unhinged, be not in their right mind, is tremendously dangerous. And so we need to change the policy. And so we need to think about how we want to do that. There's two basic ways to do it. We could say that the president cannot use nuclear weapons first, ever. That's a very clear directive so that the military knows that we can never use nuclear weapons unless we've already been attacked with nuclear weapons. So that would be very relieving in the current situation, right? Because President Trump, because we have not been attacked, would not be able to launch nuclear weapons. 
and that would be good. The other way to do it is to share the decision to launch with Congress so that Trump would need to get congressional approval before launching nuclear weapons. And that would also be very reassuring in the current situation. It would also be more constitutional, in my view, because the Constitution gives the power to declare war to Congress, not to the president. And the first use of nuclear weapons, in my view, is a declaration of war. So it makes more sense for Congress to at least have a role in that process. So either we say we can't use nuclear weapons first or that Congress has to approve any decision to use. Both of those things would give clear direction to the military and be infinitely preferable to the sort of ambiguous situation we have now. Does he have any diminished power to do this one day or two days or one hour before he steps out of the White House? President Trump has the full authority of U.S. nuclear weapons until noon on January 20th until the new president is inaugurated. Until then, he's got full control. And that's a situation that it will be up to the next president, President Biden, to change. We all think, oh, that can never happen that uh, they would never allow that to happen, that Nancy Pelosi was just talking to Mark Milley, the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He would never let that happen. Is that something you can go to bed on and sleep tight? No. Again, it's a hope. We would hope that Trump would not order that attack, and we would hope that the military would not follow that order. But hope is not a strategy. <laughs> we need We need firm policy here that says the president can't do this. We cannot just uh, put this on the military um, to be the final safeguard here. And that's Tom Kalina. He's policy director of the Plowshares Fund. Meanwhile, President-elect Joe Biden, looking forward to pushing his own recovery agenda after he's inaugurated, says he's leaving Trump's removal for Congress to decide. I've been saying for now well over a year, he is not fit to serve. He is not fit to serve. He's one of the most incompetent presidents in the history of the United States of America. And so the idea that I think he shouldn't be out of office yesterday is not the issue. 81 million people stood up and said, it's time for him to go. And the United States Senate voted 93 to 6 to confirm that we should be sworn in. We were, we were duly elected. So I think it's important we get on with the business getting him out of office. The quickest way that that will happen is us being sworn in on the 20th. What action happens before or after that is a judgment for the Congress to make, but that's what I am looking forward to, him leaving office. I was told that on the way up here, our way over here, that he indicated he wasn't going to show up at the, uh, at the inauguration. One of the few things he and I have ever agreed on. President-elect Joe Biden. An immunity of sorts is sweeping the State Department. United States diplomats have drafted two cables condemning Trump's incitement of the deadly assault on the Capitol using what is known as the State Department's dissent channel. Career foreign and civil service officers said failing to publicly hold the president to account would further damage our democracy and our ability to effectively accomplish our foreign policy goals abroad. The cable called on Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to support any lawful effort by Vice President Mike Pence and other cabinet members to protect the country, including through the possible implementation of the procedures provided for in Article 4 of the 25th Amendment, if appropriate. And the Republican Party is fracturing over the assault on the Capitol. Many are calling an attempted coup against the government of the United States. That's despite a tape message from Trump posted on Wednesday night, apparently bashing his own supporters. 
The demonstrators who infiltrated the Capitol have defiled the seat of American democracy. To those who engaged in the acts of violence and destruction, you do not represent our country. And to those who broke the law, you will pay. One of the organizers of the assault on the Capitol is right-wing agitator Nicholas Fuentes. After Trump's video was published, he tweeted, people were willing to die for this man and he just threw them all under the bus. That's the only thing that's shameful about the events of the past 36 hours. I'm sure the usual suspects suggested that this was a good idea. I hope Trump reverses course for our sake. But as dozens of alleged rioters at the Capitol are being swept up in an FBI dragnet across the nation, investigators are pointing to a big fish who is not only seen inciting the crowd, but is also closely associated with the Republican Party. His name is Ali Alexander, a popular right-wing Internet personality closely aligned with professional provocateurs like Alex Jones and Roger Stone. Investigative reporter Greg Pallast, working with his associate in Georgia, Zach Roberts, says Ali Alexander was not only intimately involved in organizing the assault on the Capitol, but is closely tied to the mainstream Republican Party, both in Georgia and nationwide. Pallast published a video of the Stop the Steal protest featuring Alexander on his website, gregpallast.com. takeover of the Capitol to overturn the presidential election. White power, Trump troops, and at the center of it, this man, Ali Alexander. Before the Washington riot, he was in Georgia creating mayhem with Alex Jones to overturn the presidential election. was Alexander working with? USA! USA! The Georgia Republican Party and the National Republican Senatorial Committee. That's right, Ali Alexander, hate monger, convicted felon. And here he is yucking it up with a Nazi, the official partner of the Georgia Republican Party, working with the GOP to lead a door knocking operation in Georgia. And here's Alexander in Washington. And what's happening now is exactly what I've warned about. We call the Republican Party. Please leave a message at the tone. Hello, this is Greg Pallast of the Pacifica Network. And I'm calling to find out why the Republican Senatorial Committee is working with someone named Ali Alexander in Georgia. Before the D.C. riots, he was there, said, we'll light the whole shit on fire. I want to know why you are working with him. Please call me. Palace associate Zach Roberts infiltrated Alexander's website, Stop the Steel U.S. He paints this portrait of the agitator. Ali Alexander is a Christian nationalist and a long-term grifter. He has worked his way through the fringes of Republican politics. He's worked alongside with such <laughs> luminaries as Roger Stone the Catholic fascist Nick Fuentes. He's a regular on the Alex Jones show. It seems that we have discovered that he is working directly with the National Republican Senatorial Committee and the Georgia Republican Party. 
and he is sharing data, it seems, with them, which is something that we've long assumed has been happening. How did you find out about his role? There was no subterfuge or anything. I went on the Stop the Steals website, um, entered my middle names, just because Ali, I'm pretty sure, knows who I am. What does this show about what happened at the Capitol? This shows that one of the organizers of what happened at the Capitol, now it's found that he worked with several congressmen, other far-right congressmen, who the plans on how the people could get into the Capitol building and kind of the layout, and that sort of thing. And they worked together to take over the Capitol. A person who organized the insurrection of the United States government to the Republican Party, to the mainstays of the Republican Party. This isn't Roger Stone. This is the Georgia State Republican Party. This is the National Republican Senatorial Committee. These are the people that will show up on MSNBC or CNN and talk about, you know, well, you know, respectable politics. We must worry about civility. Remember that work? Remember when people would heckle uh, Republicans and diners? Everyone would scream about civility. Well, you know, here we are. Investigative reporter Zach Roberts. Greg Palace says the evidence is clear. In late December, Alexander told followers on Periscope that he and three GOP congressmen, Representatives Paul Gosar and Andy Biggs of Arizona and Representative Mo Brooks of Alabama, were planning something big for January 6th. Who is this person? Ali Alexander is a superstar of the ultra-right, alt-right movement with Alex Jones. And in between the two of them, uh, Nick Fuentes, this is in Georgia, in Alabama, before they took off for for Washington, that Ali Alexander, and he's and Nick Fuentes, by the way, who's standing next to him, is the guy who took those pictures, who broke into Nancy Pelosi's office and took pictures of that uh, schmuck with, the, with his feet up on Pelosi's desk. But he was one of the invaders. But this was planned. And Ali Alexander announced, and we have him on camera, we'll light the whole shit on fire. He is a superstar of the alt-right. He was working directly with the Georgia Republican Party. We signed up for his little speech. He was the main speaker, the keynote speaker for the Georgia Republican Party at their Youth Get Out the Vote event in suburban Atlanta. In other words, the Republican Party is more than happy to play games with this alt-right nutcase. Well, I say nutcase, alt-right danger, um, to, because they have no youth base except for the young evangelical whites to gather the bigger crowd, they needed, they're ready to play games with Ali Alexander and his crowd. And it, and it wasn't just the Georgia Republican Party. When we signed up, when Zach Roberts, uh, who's on our team, signed up uh, to work with Alexander, um, and <laughs> uh, he didn't get a copy, a note back just from the Georgia Republican Party. He also received direct instructions on uh, the work he'd be doing with uh, Ali Alexander from this, the Senate National Republican Campaign. This is the big Washington Senate group trying to uh, uh, prevent the Ossoff-Warnock victory. So it came out of their top people in Washington. It came out of their top people in Georgia, in the Republican Party. And if you go to gregpalace.com, you can even read the notes and letters from them and uh, if you click on it and you go through their piles and there's alexander being the featured speaker at several of their events and uh, the center of attention at the big get out the vote uh rally in uh in suburban atlanta
Are you imputing that uh, when Senator Tomey uh, says that he wants, and another senator just joined from the GOP, wants Trump to resign, they might not be telling fully telling the story? There's plenty of rats leaving the ship, but there's plenty of rats willing to uh, uh, replace them with other rats. It's easy to target Trump now. What I'm very concerned about is the Senate National Republican Committee and the Georgia Republican Party, the official party, the main so-called mainstream party, which is bringing in these dangerous characters who attack the Capitol. And I have to tell you that the speech that Ali Alexander gave with Alex Jones and again, the congressional invader Nick Fuentes, and they were all there in Washington, that again, it was after their threats, after they said, we're going to burn this whole shit down. It was after that that the Republican Party sponsored Alexander's operation for them to get out the vote and sponsor them. You go to Republican sites, there he is. That's the Repu- Again, it's the party's mainstream. This is what is dangerous, far more dangerous in a way than, than Trump's uh, untweeted thumbs now. What is their route to the youth culture? It's hard to imagine for us who went through the 60s, we think of rebellion against the system as anti-war, pro-civil rights. The times they are changing. Well, yeah, the times they are changing again. And when you go to places like Georgia, rural Georgia, and you go to through much of the south and the mountain states, yes, the youth are rebelling. They're uh, They're rebelling against their parents who voted for Obama. They're voting against their parents who are part of the system. They have found in Donald Trump their great heroes. There is in rural, rural areas especially. Donald Trump is their Bernie Sanders. And President Trump has been stripped of his access to Twitter and Facebook after victims of Trump's online venom had complained for years of the president's vicious tweets. Twitter's decision to ban Trump sparked a fierce political backlash, and Trump is reportedly scrambling to find a new way to communicate with his allies. Right-wingers have predictably been uh, blasting Twitter for its decision to cut off Trump, which comes at a time when there's growing pressure to either break up the big tech companies or end their protections from being sued for posts by others on their sites, the so-called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996. But the director of research at the Democracy Cooperative, Thomas Hanna, who co-authored a report on big tech, says the answer is public ownership. The decision to ban Donald Trump in the wake of the insurrection last week has caused quite a lot of controversy especially on the left. And it's a complicated question, but in my opinion, I think we need to recognize that multiple things can simultaneously be true. These platforms have consciously enabled misinformation and manipulation and have really abetted the resurgence of fascism in this country and around the world in recent years. And from that perspective, I think the actions that they've begun to take recently around deprioritizing content, flagging misinformation, and banning people like Trump can be seen as positive steps. However, at the same time, I think it's right to be extremely concerned that large for-profit corporations are the ones who get to decide what is and what is not acceptable speech and content for our society. What do you think is going to happen uh, after Joe Biden takes power, which we're assuming is going to happen at this point, as far as like Section 230 and that protects other people who post things as well? In the past few months, there's been a lot of antitrust enforcement action that has been started against big tech. And I think you can kind of see the actions that they have taken against Donald Trump and others in the lens of the changing political winds. Uh, And these big companies are trying to get ahead 
of the, these changes and what's coming with the Democratic administration and try and portray themselves as being responsible actors. We're in the face of a big battle between us and big tech in the coming weeks and months and years. Antitrust and things like regulation and things like Section 230, they are band-aids. They are window dressing on a, on a larger problem with these platform corporations and these giant big tech monopolies. And what we really need to do is we need to get to the question of ownership and alternative models of ownership around these corporations. Simply breaking them up, in my opinion, is not good enough. Simply regulating them, even as public utilities, is not good enough. We need to think about ownership, and we need to think about public ownership, and we need to think about enabling and embedding cooperatives and platform cooperatives as alternatives to these uh, big tech corporations. What would public ownership of big tech companies look like? We're calling for what we call democratic public ownership, and so we're not calling for giant state-owned Facebooks or state-owned Twitters. The history of public ownership in the United States around the world through the 20th century was one of a large bureaucratic state-owned enterprise. That's not what we want. That's not what I think anybody wants when they're talking about public ownership. We're talking about a form of ownership that is far more democratic, far more participatory, far more equitable, includes things like multi-stakeholder governance, includes things like new values, pro-privacy protections, anti-surveillance protections, things like data trusts that are connected to ownership that give people access to their data. We're talking about a whole new form of ownership, and that's one of the big benefits of public ownership, is that it's a flexible ownership form, unlike private ownership. Public ownership needs to be designed and can be designed for whatever ends that we want. And that's Thomas Hanna, director of research at the Democracy Cooperative. And finally, Mexico's president on Thursday blasted social media companies for blocking the accounts of President Trump for his part in the chaotic scenes in Washington on Wednesday, again appearing to cleave to his U.S. counterpart in contentious disputes. I don't like censorship, Lopez Obrador said. I don't like anyone to be censored and for them to have their right taken away to send a message on Twitter or Facebook. Lopez Obrador waited weeks to congratulate Biden on his election victory, arguing that disputes over the process needed to be resolved first. He didn't mention Trump by name, but he brought up social media intervention without prompting. And that's some of the news for Sunday, January 10th, 2021. The news is produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Max Schmid from New York City. For the WBAI News, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.